For 2,000 years, the Christian church has commemorated and has been in the purview of the story that was just read to us by Tom. A story concerning the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. It seems, though, as all of history is caught and compelled by this gravitational pull, like, like the moon circling the earth, we are all compelled and controlled by it, even though you know, we may not realize it or not. Humanity has never been the same. For good or for ill, wars have been fought, new territory claimed or stolen, cultures exploited, slaves captured, slaves freed, Poor have been fed, homeless cared for, the marginalized have been protected. Rightly or wrongly, all of these things claim to be done in the name of one Jesus of Nazareth, the one crucified who is called the Christ, and on his placard, the King of the Jews. So today, I think we need some clarity. As the church globally pauses today and is reminded of these events, The first and obvious question is, why? Why did Jesus have to die? Why the cross? Why Good Friday? But let me postulate that the why is actually not the right question. In fact, there's a more important question than why. You see, the events that we commemorate today do stand at the very center of human existence. But that's not the climax of the story. This morning, I would like us to look at the real question, not why, but who. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Who is the one they called the Christ that that the crowd wanted to kill? Who is this Jewish Messiah that died so horribly? Who is the king of the Jews who so altered our world in history? See, when we understand the who, the why becomes evident. When we understand who Jesus is, the why of the crucifixion will be made clear. Now, I'm old, and I like movies, so bear with me. Bruce Willis starred in a psychological thriller in the late 90s called The Sixth Sense. Yeah, I didn't think I was going to go there, did you? It's a fairly famous film. Probably most of us have seen it. But if you're not familiar with the story, it's it's compelling. It's, It's a fun thriller where Bruce Willis, he plays a psychologist. And he helps this young child deal with the trauma of, of all things, seeing ghosts. This child is haunted by these ghosts, and and he lives in abject terror of these ghosts, and he confesses to Bruce, he says, I see dead people. In a brilliant and chilling twist at the end of the show, it reveals, really, that Bruce is the ghost that is haunting this child. Now, there's no, I'm not going to interweave you know, the crucifixion story with this, but, but like every good thriller, you have these, these clues, these little droplets that are seemingly in obvious plain sight, but you don't see them, and they're dropped there, they're dropped there, they're dropped there, and then when you get the reveal at the end, you're like, oh, wow, and then you have to instantly go back, pay your money, and see it again, or, or, or you know, put it on repeat, and you watch it again to pick up everything that you've missed. In some ways, this story of Jesus is like the cosmic thriller. It spans space, it spans time, and it is the story where all of creation hangs in the balance. And I'm not speaking hyperbolically here. Imagine this morning 
We're following the narrative of this thriller. And I would like for us, in the time we have, to visit a few specific snapshots or clues that were revealed in the biblical narrative that we have for us that will actually show us who Jesus is in full clarity, the one who dies on the cross. So our first snapshot is one of expectation and of promise. It's no secret that as long as recorded history has been recorded, as long as there have been people in this world, as long as there has been mankind, there has been hubris, there's been destruction, there's been exploitation, and there's been suffering. That's not a new story. So we enter this story about 700 years before the events that Tom read for us this morning. And, it's un and the nation of Israel is languishing under the might and the oppressive force of the Assyrian army. And at this time, there began to be prophetic whispers, whispers of hope, whispers that one would come and a growing expectation that someone would come that would be sent by God that would restore the fortunes of not only Israel but of all mankind and they would free us from slavery, from death, from destruction. The clearest of these examples is in Isaiah chapter 53. So I'll let the text speak for itself. Starting in verse 2, Isaiah 53 says this, for he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of the dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and it's from one whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. And afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who he considered, that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, we shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for transgressors. Christ City, do you see the clues here? Verse, verse three, he's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. grief. Verse five, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse six, Laid upon him is the iniquity or the sin of us all, the guilt of us all. Verse 7, the lamb that is led to the slaughter. Verse 8, stricken for the transgressions of my people. Verse 10, his soul makes an offering for guilt. Verse 11, he makes 
many to be accounted as righteous. And he shall bear iniquities. Verse 12, he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. In this snapshot, what is clear is there will be one sent by God, a suffering servant, one willing substitute who would disadvantage himself for the sake of the many. This man of sorrows will be an offering to remove sin, which, which at the time the sacrificial system was in place where, where you needed something to, to lay our hands and put our guilt on in the sin and it would be slaughtered for your stuff. The suffering servant is the one that accomplishes that and he makes us clean. He removes our guilt. And as verse 5 says, upon him was the punishment that brings us peace. This, this snapshot portrays a lamb who is a would be innocent substitute. And he would be a sacrifice to cover sin and guilt and shame. And through this, many would be healed and made new. In our first snapshot, we have an expectation of promise, a rescue for humanity mired in the brokenness of sin. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, we find snapshot number 2. And this is a snapshot of witness John the Baptist was this crazy, weird guy who had camel hair and he ate like bugs. And, and he's baptizing in the wilderness. And he looks up one day and he sees Jesus coming. And we pick up the story in chapter 1, verse 29. He says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is whom I said, after me comes one who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. For this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend like heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, On whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, we could preach a whole sermon on this text. This, this snapshot has many things going on, but there's a couple that I would like to highlight. The first is we see John's proclamation right out of the gate. He says, look, he declares, he sees Jesus and he says, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus directly is saying this. He's saying, look, this suffering servant of Isaiah that you're waiting for and hope, John declares, it is fulfilled here in this man, in Jesus. I testify to that. It is fulfilled in Jesus. And echoing this Jewish tradition of Passover, this lamb that was the innocent thing that was the substitute, this lamb that would be a sacrifice for sin to be passed over, this lamb of sacrifice would bring righteousness and peace to the one previous guilty. John looks upon Jesus of Nazareth and said, this is this lamb. This is Jesus. This is Jesus who Isaiah referenced. And I'm here to tell you that not only not only is this the Jesus, the Lamb, but he's also the Son of God whom the Spirit dwells. What was once a promised whisper of hope becomes personified flesh and blood in Jesus. See, the picture that is started on Isaiah now becomes clear. John proclaims that Jesus is the Lamb of the God who takes away the sin of the world, but he doesn't stop there. He says he's the Son of God. Who is Jesus Christ City? He, 
He is not only the means or the path to forgive sin, but he's also the one who forgives sin. Do you see the intricate dynamic of that? Not only is he the means or path to forgiveness, but he's the one who actually forgives at the same time. So with this firmly in our minds, we can now hit our snapshot number three. Now this story in Mark chapter two is a fascinating one for me. I've been kind of weirdly gripped by it as I've read it and reread it and reread it again. So Jesus, he's, he's returning from the city to the city of Capernaum and he's, he says he's at home. Can you imagine like, you know, all of a sudden you're at home and a thousand people show up at your house. Well, this is what happens. Jesus is just trying to chill and the house is full of people. It says it's so full that people are in the trying to see in the doorway. And there was, there's rumors around that Jesus would not only, you know, like talk and expound wisdom, but he'd actually heal people. So there's this man who's lame, who, who, who is crippled. And he wants to see Jesus because he wants to be healed and he can't get close enough. So, he's, so his friends, four of them, they're like, oh, we can do this. And so some sort of weird like, you know, theatrical ability, they pull the roof off the house and they lower Jesus as some sort of like trapeze artist. In, in, they lower him in front of Jesus and then we pick up the story in, chap, in verse five of chapter two of Mark. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And we're like, didn't he come there to be healed? So like, we're, we're, we count ourselves among the scribes here. And the scribes said, you know, we're sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were thus questioning him within themselves, and he said to them, why do you question these things? Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take up your bed, and walk? I guess if you think about it, yeah, a good question. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all. And they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this before. Jesus is fully self-aware here. He's aware that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's aware that he has the ability to forgive sin. And as a show of his power of this of this reconciliatory power, he restores this crippled man's legs. This is not some sort of Todd White kind of healing scenario, but a foretaste of the Son of God restoring broken humanity inside and out. Who is Jesus? He is the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain. He is the Son of God, not only able to forgive sin, but the one who has the power to, to heal a broken and hurting world. Right now, you may be thinking, yeah, blah, 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 I get it, Heath. I know where you're going with this. I see the end. I've heard it before. Why do I care? What significance is this for me today? This is old news. He has healed me, right? Ha ha, yeah, right. He hasn't healed me. How does this Jesus affect my day today? Exactly as I was writing these words, I'm not making this up. I get a text from a friend. And he confesses to me 
that there is no hope left in this world for him, and he wants to die, and he wants to say goodbye before he does so. What do I tell him? You see, I don't believe in coincidences here. What do I tell him? What do I tell my friend who, by the way, would call himself a Christian? So to this person willing to end it all in a last-ditch effort of hope, he reaches out and he asks, is there anything worth living for, Heath? Is there anything worth living for? What can I, what can we possibly say to restore his hope, to restore his joy? When cold logic says, I am of no value whatsoever, what can I say that won't sound like empty platitudes? Christ City, I remind him who Jesus is. And I take him to snapshot number four, to the very throne room of God at the end of time, and I paint for him a picture so beautiful, he is compelled by it. Not because I said it, but because, because it's so amazing. Turn with me to Revelation chapter five. And this is weird. This is John. He was with Jesus. He, he experienced everything that Jesus was, and, he's, and he has this vision and he sees this scene. Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written with it on the back, sealed with seven seals. This is like a seal of, of judgment. And I see a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look at it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, behold, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls with its seven seals. And we get a little bit of weird stuff here. It said, Between the throne and the four living creatures, among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though he'd been slain with seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying. And this is what I said to my friend. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked up and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders of the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them saying, in other words, like everything, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever, and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders found down and worshipped him. Who is Jesus? 
Oh, he is the one who is worthy. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the one who has conquered. And I wish we could have more snapshots to explain the fullness of how beautiful that statement is. But in a cosmic reveal of all proportions, this lion, this root of David, this Jesus is the one who conquers. How? Through weakness, because he is the lamb that was slain. Power through weakness. And he ransoms, this one who was slain ransoms a people for God. This is a, like the paradox of the strong becoming weak. And he is worthy of our praise. This lamb is Jesus. And he is the one that as Isaiah is looking forward to. He is the one that John the Baptist declares. He is the one, he is worthy because in weakness he conquers in death. This is the epic climax. We aren't haunted, we aren't a haunted people who celebrate a magical rite on Good Friday. We, we don't see dead people. We see a lamb who was slain that died for all people, the one whom all creation will bow and worship, and though he is the one who is worthy, and it's not Bruce Willis. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, honor and glory. Who is Jesus Christ City? Jesus is the one who is worthy, the lamb who was slain, the one who's by blood it ransoms you and I from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Jesus ransoms all who believes in him. And the result is worship. Who is Jesus Christ City? He is the one worthy of our praise. And this is what I tell my friend. This is what I tell my friend when he is wanting to end it all. And I say to him, it's not about you, bro. It's about the one who's worthy. We can look to him. We can set our hope in him, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the one who is worthy. For the joy that was set before him, he, the one who is worthy, endures the cross. He despises the shame. He is the one who is worthy. The lamb at the right hand of the throne of God, he is the one who is worthy. He is the one who knows our sorrows, and he is the one that can help us set aside all the hurt and all the trauma, all the disappointments, all the failures, all the things that we struggle with and all the sin that clings closely. He is the one worthy. Jesus is the lamb of the God who was slain, and he is to be worshipped, and we can lay all that garbage at his feet. We can look to him and be healed no matter what burdens you walked in here with. The cross, hear me clearly, the cross is significant because Jesus is significant. The cross is the center of history because Jesus is the climax of the story. Because Jesus is worthy, the cross can be the place where the sin of mankind can be dealt with. All the wars, oh, and we've got a few of them, don't we? The violence, the death, the destruction, even down to the very little thing that you're trying so hard to cover up. Jesus is powerful enough. He is worthy enough. And we leave it at the foot of the cross. And in his weakness, he pays the price that you and I deserve so we can have a life that we do not deserve. We can have our sins forgiven, Christ City. We can find value and receive in healing in the cross because he is the lamb that was slain. By his wounds, we are healed. My grandfather never came to faith until he was about 42. He was a tough man, hard, violent. One night he had a dream. 
And he had a dream of a man glowing in white, bleeding on him. And he looks up and he says, who are you? And the glowing man says, I am Jesus. And this blood is not just for the people that go to church. This blood is for you. My grandfather's life was irreparably changed. The cross is significant because Jesus is worthy. Because Jesus is both the Lamb of God and the Son of God. Otherwise, the cross is just another act of senseless violence where some innocent person is exploited. If Jesus is not worthy, if his blood doesn't cover our sin, then we are greatly to be pitied. As we close, I want to leave you with one more snapshot. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Shortly after the events of the crucifixion that Tom read for us, Paul is addressing this same crowd in Jerusalem. And he says this in Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 22, he says, Men of Israel. And he's talking to everyone. He says, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. Poof. And then in 36, he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. God is the lamb that was slain and the one who is worthy to be praised. And this is Jesus whom you crucified. And Peter said, The response from the crowd was this, in verse 37. They say, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? And Peter answers, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Christ City, you and I are among that crowd. It's our voices in unison that cry out, crucify him. And as the song that we sang earlier says, it was our sin that held him there. And as we close, I want for us to grapple with this. I want for us to, to grapple as part of the crowd. Brothers, what shall we do? Brothers, sisters, people sitting here this morning, what shall we do? Jesus is the one who is worthy. And he always has demanded a response. Christ City, how do we respond to this Jesus of Nazareth? What shall I do? Do you repent and receive the Holy Spirit and be baptized? That's why we celebrate baptisms at Easter. Or do you scoff, mock, and walk away? We're going to observe a moment of silence now. And after we observe a moment of silence, we are going to, to pray a prayer. The words will be on the screen, and it'll be obvious for when you need to, to say your part. And then we will leave in relative somber note. So let's observe a moment of silence.
Merciful God, we meet each other today at the foot of the cross as inhabitants of one world and members of one greater family. We wait with each other as those who inflict wounds on one another. Be merciful to us. As those who deny justice to others, be merciful to us. As those who put our trust in power, be merciful to us. As those who are greedy, be merciful to us. As those who put others on trial, be merciful to us. As those who refuse to receive, be merciful to us. As those who are afraid of the world's torments, be merciful to us. O crucified Jesus, ruler of every heart, in you are the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In you dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. We worship you. Jesus, Lamb of God, have mercy on us. Jesus, bearer of our sins, have mercy on us. Jesus, redeemer of the world, grant us peace. Go in peace, Christ City.